Hey, funny people. Thanks for joining me here on this episode of Four Cents of Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to talk about. So stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome once again to Four Cents of Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez-Kassmeyer, and this is The Weekly Waffle. This is going to be a very fun episode for me to do because I finally get to read a piece that I that I recently had published. Um, earlier this week, a friend and colleague of mine, Brianna Gary, who is an assistant editor or an editorial assistant at uh, Orbit Books in New York, uh, opened her own personal website called The Angry Noodle Open to Submissions. And upon seeing this, like the good little writer that I am, I decided I was going to take a chance and submit something to her, and I did. And uh, she accepted it, and it was published this past Wednesday. You, those of you who follow me on Twitter might well have noticed that I was retweeting it in a frenzy trying to get people to look at it. It's like, look at me, look at me, look, I got something to publish. Not that anybody really gives a shit. It's at me, but I give a shit, so... <laughs> Hence the reason why I cared so much. Anyway, um, the piece is titled Oscar Ambrose's Magicpedia Guide to Modern Mirror Making, and since it's now out there in the world, I feel absolutely no qualms about reading it here on the podcast for you guys. So you're gonna, I hope you guys enjoy it. I, I really enjoyed doing this, and I'll talk a little bit about it later on um, as we get towards that end of the show. But Something interesting happened in the Twitter writing community simultaneously, you know, in, in the wake of me having this really great piece of news and this really fun turn of event uh, for me and my professional career, you know, because Oscar Ambrose is a story I've been trying to get published for f- about four years, um, and it finally has found a home on the Angry Noodle, but um, it... I, I I just found it amazing that at the same time when this great piece of news was coming my way, and by the way, it's also the first story I've technically ever sold, which curves into what I want to talk about today. Several of my colleagues in the writing community, now here's the thing you need to understand about the Twitter writing community. The writing community on Twitter is largely made up of indie authors, people who publish independently outside of the big five systems. Some of them go uh, with small presses, like uh, Starcrossed, the anthology that I was, that my fourth story was published in just this past April. Um, that was done through Fedoir Press, which was a small press that was founded right at the end of 2020. And those of you who've bought that book will know that it is a professional grade wonderful beautiful looking book i mean it is it's gorgeous it is my favorite book that i've been in so far simply because of that cover and the the quality of the book that was printed because i've got a couple of copies and i've been i've been sticking them in free little libraries all around my neighborhood here in st louis (laughs) just take a book leave a book i just leave a book because i got plenty of books at home so there's that going on but the thing of it is is that the the like i said the the Twitter writing community, even though there are a lot of professional 
traditionally published authors there, and there are new tra traditionally published authors who are constantly there, and they're looking for agents, and they're going that route, and they're hell-bent on going that route, and I'm one of them, I count myself among those. Um, the vast majority of the people who are there, who are out there, are indie authors. They, they do everything themselves, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a perfectly legit form of publication. And anybody who says otherwise is a fucking idiot. I know that, you know, maybe it was last week, maybe it was earlier this week, there was some schmuck who went out there who actually called indie writers scabs uh, for because the books that we publish and put out there are apparently taking money away from traditionally published authors, which, first of all, is bullshit. Because, first of all, our books... You know, the indie writer, indie published books don't get nearly the same amount of marketing that traditionally published books are. That's the main difference between the two forms, between the two modes of getting published. You've got this massive marketing team that belongs to this giant company that has existed for hundreds of years and knows how to market books and is constantly figuring out new ways and has the resources to learn how to market books, and they're just pumping them out there, just putting them out there. Meanwhile, an indie author basically has whatever platforms they have. They've got the TikTok, they've got their Facebook page, although most people tend to avoid that. They've got their blog on Medium, they've got their own website if they're, you know, really savvy with tech, they've got Twitter, they've got maybe a YouTube channel, and that's it. That's their whole marketing team. That's their whole marketing platform. Uh, they don't have the ability to get their books into traditionally published stores. They don't have the ability necessarily to get their books into libraries on physical shelves. Maybe they can get the ebooks in there, but not the actual physical books. You know, they don't have the ability to get them into big box change. So the idea that these little cottage industry industrialists, these little, you know, these, these little wordsmiths who are trying to get their work out there, trying to get even just a modicum of success, are stealing money from professionally published authors is, is ludicrous. And anybody who proposes that idea is clearly a moron. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's clearly a moron. Um, it's, it's, oh lord, it's so stupid. Like, <laughs> It's so stupid, I can't even think of a decent analogy to, to compare it to, because it's not worth the brain power. <laughs> it's like, what? What? God damn it, moron. But it, it was more than that. Later on this week, like right around the same time when, when, when this debate was going on, Somebody else uh, started going after a couple of my friends. Chris Van Dyke, a fellow contributor to The New Normal and, um, and, and Beneath the Twin Suns, as well as the head of Skullgate Media, who I've talked about on this uh, show before. Um, he got attacked because he's, his, his company is opening up uh, submissions for the fourth volume in the Tales from the Year Between anthology series. Uh, and for those of you who've never seen one of these books... They are gorgeous. They are professional-grade printed books, and they come out in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. And I don't know if Chris has yet investigated what it would take to get these turned into audiobooks, but he should check it out because, you know, I think people would pay an audible credit in order to get 13, 14, 15 individual stories that are of top-notch quality. Um, 
you know, read to them. It would be phenomenal. It'd be even cooler if you could get each of the individual authors to read their stories and have that audio be part of the audiobook. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Anyway, he got attacked by some, you know, buckwheat twat waffle troll uh, <laughs> earlier this week <laughs> because there is no upfront payment for this. Um, and just, you know, earlier this weekend, he actually instituted a special profit-sharing uh, motive uh, for each of the anthologies. That's not only going to be applied to the newest one that he's taking submissions for, but is going to be applied retroactively to all three of the volumes that are, that are out now, um, which I think is great on his part. The thing of it is that these anthologies, because they don't have any big names in them, you know, it's not like Neil Gaiman or... George R. Martin or, or V. Schwab or Shonda McGuire has been queuing up to be a part of these things because they that you know they they've got traditionally published careers they don't need to be a part of this they they you know they don't need any more exposure um, although it'd be cool if one of them did agree to be a part of it that'd be awesome because that would move copies uh, but the, the fact of the matter is is that there's nobody who's a big name in any of these anthologies and so the likelihood of them having a massive profit is ridiculous. And the fact that somebody would actually get peeved at Chris for wanting to give people a platform to get their fiction out there is also ludicrous. Here's what you have to understand. And this is something that the, the short story writer Eric James Stone talked about. Eric James Stone uh, explained very bluntly to a group of BYU students in a lecture he gave a couple of years ago, uh, one of the lectures that Brandon Sanderson does. He explained that there is no money in short fiction. The only real, yeah, I mean, there is a little bit. If you're if you're submitting to an SFWA or professional grade um, publication, like say Analog or Asimov's or Daily SF or the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, or FIA uh, that's out there now, or Fireside Fiction. All professional-level publications, many of which have corporate backing, like Tor.com has corporate backing, but they don't take unsolicited submissions anymore, unfortunately, or Clark's World, you know, any of these. The thing you have to understand is that, A, there are not enough publications out there now for anybody to make a living writing just short fiction. When Jay Lake great science fiction and fantasy writer, um, who some of you might know of. When Jay Lake was alive, he was one of the most prolific short story writers in the world, and in his lifetime. Uh, it was amazing how fast he could crank out a short story. And you know how he got that good? He did the Ray Bradbury challenge of writing a short story a week. One short story a week for an entire year, and from that point on, he could just crank out pieces very, very quickly take anything and turn it into a short story it's amazing um and and even he was never able to make a living fully from writing short fiction that's why he eventually turned to writing novels um some very good novels uh excellent novels actually uh with some big name publishers and a few with some smaller uh, independent presses as well um, because the novels sell better than the short fiction but the short fiction got him a reputation it guaranteed him a reputation he won the John W. Campbell Award I think it was 
think that's what it's called. You know, there's multiple Campbell Awards, and they all need to be renamed because John W. Campbell was a piece of shit, as we all know. But he won the Campbell Award solely based on the short fiction he'd published without having published a novel. No other author, I think, ever since the institution of that award had ever done that. Jay Lake did it. But even as great a short fiction writer as he was, he couldn't make a living at it. The dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. There aren't enough venues printing every single month, printing enough stories every single month for anybody to make short, make money just writing short fiction. Okay, the days of the pulps are long gone, folks. Um, where if you were able to write a million words a year, you could make a, a reasonably de- decent living if you were lucky, if you were good, and uh, you could write multiple things, and you were fast, fast and good. Very two qualities that are very seldom. Uh, apparent in writers simultaneously. Ray Bradbury could do it. Isaac Asimov reasonably could do it. Um, Heinlein, obviously, um, and many others. But the fact of the matter is, is that people don't go into writing short fiction. They don't go into publishing short fiction as a way of making assloads of money. It's and if you think you're going to make assloads of money publishing short fiction, run. <laughs> run go find a different trade go be a plumber go be an electrician um because i don't know what they were expecting uh chris to say to them like yeah there is no upfront payment but that now there is this profit sharing thing thing of it is that i don't think any of the books up to this point have been overtly profitable i think they've made just enough money to cover their expenses and that's about it uh and that's you know that that's got to be enough for now And clearly, the authors who want to be a part of these projects, the guy knew it when when I signed up to be in the four anthologies that I've been in so far, the fifth one that's been that that will eventually come out, 42 words. They're still taking submissions.、Um, I knew that there was no money going into this, but all those books were being put out so that way they could provide funds for certain charities. You know, we all agreed to forego any royalties in order for the money to go to the charities, which I think is, you know, a slightly nobler reason to do short fiction than just to、um, to make a little money. To make money, you know, it's it's the arts are not about making money. Money's great, don't get me wrong, and you need it to survive. But if all you if you're only writing fiction for money. What the hell's wrong with you? I mean, if you want to write fiction for money, write a novel. Be a Danielle Steele. Be a James. Be a be a Dan Brown. Be a James Patterson. Be one of those people. Make lots of money and go away and leave people alone.、Um, you know, write crime and write mystery and write、uh, write romance, and you'll make tons of money as long as you can convince some big five publisher to sell it for you.、Uh, but in the meantime, you know. Don't harangue an independent press publisher who's trying to run a business、um, and trying to give new authors a chance to shine. Grief because you don't like the fact that they're not paying them up front. If some of those people, because some of those stories are fairly long, if some of those people sold those stories to professional grade magazines, first of all, I believe the current. SFWA standard is eight cents a word for like the first five thousand words. 
first 5,000 words. That means the most you can expect to make on a short story is about $400 if it's 5,000 words. Um, that's not that much money. You know, that for, for me, that's, a, that's maybe two healthcare premium payments. That's a month's rent. That's four weeks worth of groceries. That's, you know, this is not, this is not shut the hell up money. This is, <laughs> maybe back in the 1920s it was shut the hell up money, but not anymore. So all I'm saying is, if you're PO'd at somebody not paying you for your work, then don't be a part of the project. Just don't. Leave that person alone. Let them do their thing. Um, and let the other people who are doing their thing do their thing, too. Um, and in, in, and in the meantime, try aiming at other publications. You know, try to get into one of the Digest magazines. Try to get into one of those, uh, you know, try to get into New Yorker for all I care, or, or the Atlantic Monthly, or any of those big publications. You know, not only will you get the prestige, you'll get maybe a little bit of, of money on the side. But seriously, if, if the... There is no, there is no, um, there's no dignity in starvation, certainly in the arts, but if your first motive is profit, then you're a fool. That's all you are. You're a goddamn fool. And you should be, like, you should, you, you went into the wrong field. If that's what you were hoping to do, if you were hoping to make Stephen King bank uh, from one short story, you were a goddamn fool. Stephen King, I think, made twenty-five or fifty dollars on his first short story, maybe a little bit more than that, um, maybe like a hundred bucks, something. And he kept at it, and now look at him—he's—he's he's one of the kings of the publishing industry. Same, same for all the other mainstays of the New York Times bestseller list. Um, but they made that money by publishing books. So focus on publishing books. If that's your main motive, is making money, focus on publishing books. Write books that people want to read and write books that people will buy. Otherwise, leave all these other people alone. Let them do their thing. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, we can get on with the rest of the social. Stick around. I think you're going to enjoy this. So earlier this week, I had a I had a moment of perfect social decorum that could have gone absolutely horribly. I went in to this um, restaurant for lunch in the middle of the week, and I was at the counter trying to pay for my meal. And um, I'm guessing that the cashier must have been fairly new on the job because the they had a, a person sort of shadowing them and showing them the ropes the whole time. And so I explain my order. I go in there, you know, I explain my order to them. They punch in all the information they need into the cash register. And of course, we're still observing COVID precautions. So they have a separate uh, card reader that you can access directly from across the counter. And so I put my card in because it's one of those stupid damn chip cards that I hate so much put the card in and it doesn't go through 
Uh, and it turns out the reason it doesn't go through is because the poor cashier on the other side of the, of the cash register has not pushed the right button to authorize everything. So I end up pulling it out too quickly, and then it goes through, and then the whole thing gets canceled, and then we had to have... She got all, a little bit flustered and befuddled, and so they brought over her little supervisor and redid the whole thing. And as I'm, you know, fixing to put the card back in in order to pay for everything, because, you know, I'm not trying to be a scumbag here, uh, the cashier, who is this absolutely beautiful young woman, um, and I can tell that even though she's wearing a mask, she's obviously beautiful, <laughs> looks me dead in the eye as I'm standing there wearing a mask over my face and says, you have to put it in all the way. I'm so glad I was wearing a mask because she did not see the evil smile that crept across my face when she said that because immediately the first thing that came to my mind when she said that was that's what she said <laughs> that's what she said oldest joke in the world but I didn't say it I didn't say it I held my tongue the process was concluded and I walked away it's like, thank goodness, because that could have ended badly. Hey, Bob? What? Looks like we got another problem. Oh, goody. What is it this time? Well, I've been trying to get in touch with Billy down on the sound bay, but he hasn't been answering his stupid telecom thing. What? Where the hell is he? I don't know. I've been trying to get in touch with him because we still got this show rolling and we need to keep going. Oh, Jesus. Well, try to get in touch with him. Just keep on keep on calling his comm. Keep on going. Oh, okay. Well, hang on a second. Let me try again. Uh... Billy, are you there? Billy, are you there? God damn it. Billy, are you there? Oh, no, oh, Jesus. Good Lord. Yeah, I'm here. What's going on? Billy, I've been trying to get in touch with you because we still got a show rolling and we need to know what's going on on the sound floor. Oh, well, sorry about that. Is, is Bob there listening to you? Yeah, he's right here. Bob. I got. I finally got through to him. Good. Billy, what the hell's going on down there? Why hasn't he been able to get in touch with you this entire time? Uh, well, it's, it's just that I've been trying to see if I, uh, if I could, uh, well, it's kind of silly. Billy, you better offer an explanation at this point, otherwise I think Bob's gonna fire your ass. Yeah, you better offer an explanation, because yes, I will fire your ass. Well, it's just that, you know, the whole main thing of the the show this week is all about magic mirrors. And I was trying to see if I could turn the bathroom one into one. What? What? Billy, are you off your meds again? That's what I was going to say. Are you off your meds again? No, it's just that I read the piece and I thought it was good. And I thought, well, maybe I could turn the bathroom sink into one and, you know, cause everybody to lose their shit every once in a while. Oh, Lord. 
See, Bob, you, we've, we've had that delay. I noticed. Well, as long as he doesn't keep doing it, I guess we can move on with the show. And what about the dead air that we've got right now? Well, cue up Gumfrey's piece and put together a, an ad or something. We, we'll just have to fill the time. Okay. Sorry, folks. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, Billy, having any luck with that stupid mirror down there? No, not yet. Not yet, but I'm still trying. Sure, you keep trying. Moron. This episode of Four Cents a Podcast is brought to you today by the NALA, the National Association of Limerick Aficionados. At NALA, our members revel in the saucy, suggestive body and raunchy world of language. We compose, archive, and celebrate the glory that is the Limerick. Join us online at NALA.org and sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you'll receive a new limerick every week straight to your smartphone or computer. This week's limerick is a real kicker. There once was a ship called the Beagle, set out on a voyage quite regal. They found a solution, it's called evolution, but Kansas declared it illegal. Visit NALA.org for more linguistic fun today. for QP Body, four cents a podcast, personal, Southern Missouri correspondent, coming to you live from Pete Mall, Missouri. I asked Mr. Martinez Casmai if I could do something a little bit different this week with my special commentary, and uh, that was the request I made was to do something slightly more extemporaneous, and he has given me full carte blanche to talk about whatever I wish this week off the top of my head, so here we go. Something that has come up recently that I find rather disconcerting is the conversation around vaccine passports. Now, there have been a lot of debates on both sides of the aisle, both conservative and the more liberal side of things, about whether or not vaccine passports are a good idea. And I gotta tell you, personally speaking, that I am a little bit uncomfortable with the concept of the vaccine passport. I mean, after all, medical information should only be shared between a patient and their doctor, and should only be disclosed if absolutely necessary, and even then, only to the next of kin who might need to intervene in such a situation, such as when somebody, say, lapses into a coma. But that said, I do have to admit that I understand why people are insisting on the implementation of the vaccine passport. And here's here's how I understand it, okay? You see, the vaccine passport is, is, is as a concept is being implemented simply because not enough people are being vaccinated, they're opting not to get vaccinated, and uh, for, for various reasons, maybe they have medical issues, maybe they're a medical professional who doesn't happen to trust the type of vaccine that is currently being used right now to combat the coronavirus. You know, I believe it's a, 
what do they call it, a synthetic vaccine where they don't use actual bits of the virus to activate the antibodies in the human body? Or maybe I got that wrong after all, you know, I, who, what do I know, I ain't a doctor. But anyway, I understand it because the fact of the matter is, is that because not enough people are getting vaccinated and because a lot of people are hesitant or completely reluctant to adhere to other COVID precautions such as wearing masks in enclosed public places like grocery stores or schools and because they don't seem too keen to keep doing the six foot apart, they want to get back to normal. And yet, a lot of these other places are still trying to be cautious about it. They want to slow the spread of this virus, which is still a problem for us. So I fully understand why it needs to be out there, because after all, people are not doing what they ought to do. They're not doing what they ought to do for themselves. Now let me tell you a little secret. Old Gumfrey, let me tell you a little secret, okay? I personally, several months ago, got my vaccine, got my second dose of the Pfizer. I got my second dose of the Pfizer larger because uh, it was what was being offered, it was what was available. And people kept saying that it was probably one of the best options in order to avoid contracting a severe case of COVID and laying up, ending up in a, in a hospital on a ventilator. Now, I personally thought that, you know, enduring the indignities of having to go someplace outside my house in order to get a shot was a lot better than ended up in a hospital on a ventilator. And I think a lot of people agreed with me. And also, I I chose the Pfizer over the Moderna simply because it was what was available. You know, the Moderna was elsewhere, as was the Johnson & Johnson. But I avoided the Johnson & Johnson, even though it would have been more convenient, because it was one dose. Uh, largely because I was not interested in having a blood clot occur somewhere in my body. So I went with the Pfizer, and I got the Pfizer. But even after I got my second Pfizer shot, I have continued to wear a mask, and I have continued to observe social distancing as much as possible. Why do I keep doing this? Well, partly it's out of solidarity to all those poor essential workers who are still working away at their jobs and still have to wear masks on the job. I can't imagine that doing that job is any fun, let alone having to do it with half your face covered and having to breathe in your own air over and over and over again. So that's the first reason. second reason is very, very simple. Um... There's a concept, I believe it was named after an ancient Greek individual, may have been a great philosopher at one point, by the name of Occam. Yes, Occam. And the concept is called Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is oftentimes the most correct. Uh, I probably am misquoting that, so don't quote me on that. But anyway, the simplest explanation is often the most correct. So the simple explanation as to why I got the Pfizer vaccine, and why I I keep wearing my mask, and why I keep observing these COVID precautions is very, very simple. The simple answer is this. I want to live. I'll repeat that for those of y'all who maybe are not keeping up with my train of thought. I want to live. Getting the vaccine has this special effect of actually helping out a whole bunch of other people who are more susceptible to the virus. If I am able to avoid catching a virulent strain of it that might kill somebody who's got 
complicating conditions such as diabetes or maybe even heart disease or maybe even they're a cancer patient or maybe they're immunocompromised in some other way all the better for them that's great but quite honestly that is not my first instinct I honestly don't care if I'm helping other people I care about helping me I care about making sure that I get to live my life longer which is why I'm going through all this stuff I want to be able to live because I like my life especially ever since I got this job here on Four Cents a podcast gives some structure to my life it gives me a reason to keep on going and I'm having a great deal of fun doing it and I'd like to be able to keep doing it and I'm sure there are a lot of y'all who are listening to this right now who are also interested in keeping on doing it enjoying your lives and living day to day the thing of it is is that you may not be able to do that if you don't do what's smart for you if you don't get the vaccine whether or not it's 100% effective against preventing COVID or not, then chances are there's a good possibility that you will die as a result of the virus. If you don't continue to wear masks, as annoying, as inconvenient as they are, and you happen to catch it and you're unvaccinated, you may end up in the hospital on a ventilator and may end up like that poor young actor kid who had to have his leg amputated because he got a blood clot while in the hospital. Or, even worse, you may end up giving it to somebody you love, you know, say you happen to catch a strain of it that has absolutely no effect on you, but you bring it home to your grandma as you're visiting her, and you're bringing her food one one afternoon because she's a shut-in, you may end up killing your grandma. Now, do you want that? And ask yourself another question. Do you want to keep living? Do you want the people around you to keep living? I ain't trying to guilt trip you into getting the vaccine or into considering, you know, even when the booster shots probably end up up coming out. I'm not trying to get y'all to to concede to this. What I'm trying to say is think about the long-term ramifications of your decisions. If you want to keep on living, then probably the best thing you can do is to take the wager set before you that uh, these things will actually pay off and be good for you in the long run. And if they happen to help society, good for you. And I understand that some of you don't want to do it on grounds of politics, but that's absolutely ridiculous. It is ridiculous. You're going to go down with the ship And you're going to end up dying as a result of it just because the guy you voted for didn't advocate for any of these. It's ridiculous. Do what's good for you. And what's good for you is getting a vaccine that may actually save your life in the long run. But hey, what do I know? I'm just somebody from southern Missouri trying his damnedest to live on to the next day. I'm going to do my thing, you're going to do yours, and that's the way it goes. Anyway, that's all from me this week. If any of y'all are anywhere near Pete Mall, Missouri, anytime in the future, don't hesitate to stop by. Oscar Ambrose, uh, this story that I'm going to read to you today has a very interesting history, and that's what I'm going to try my best to sort of fill you in on. When I first began writing this piece, um, the, the original impetus of it was actually reading two short stories by 
somebody I referenced in my introduction, Eric James Stone. Um, There were two short stories of his that I read many, many years ago. One of them you can still read, I think you can still read it, on daily science fiction. It's called Motivation Story. And it's basically, it's it's a fascinating little story, very, very short, because Eric, that's kind of what he specializes in, is in short fiction. He's written one novel uh, so far. Uh, but but his main his forte is short fiction. He he's very good at it. Um, but motivation story. What was so fascinating about that piece was the fact that it was a first person story disguised as a second person story, where it starts addressing you, the reader. It uses the you pronoun quite a bit. And then somewhere in, I think, the second or third paragraph, it reverts to a first-person narrator, where all of a sudden you realize that there was somebody actually addressing you. And I just was absolutely floored by the use of that technique that I thought, one of these days I'm going to use that in a piece of mind. I just know it. The second story of his that really inspired this piece was a piece of his that you can find in his... Collection, uh, his one collection of short stories that he's had published so far called Rejiggering the Thingamajig. It's a very good collection of short stories, even though it sort of uh, breaks my personal pet peeve about short story collections. I have this uh, long-standing pet peeve that I hate it when writers who publish collections of short stories just name the collection after one story in the collection, because uh, I think it's lazy. Um, I think it's, uh, obviously it's a marketing tactic, uh, because you want to, you want to move copies, but it's a marketing tactic that grinds my gears, and I don't like it. Um, there is one exception, and that is, uh, that the story that the book is named after has to be really, really good. Um, and, uh, Rejiggering the Thingamajig is one of these stories in the collection, and it's so silly. It's such a silly story in many ways because it's about a sentient Tyrannosaurus Rex going on what is basically a fantasy quest. (laughs) Um, But it's a really good story. It's a fun story, um, despite its absolutely absurd title. Um, And that was published by Paper Golem about six years ago in 2015. 2014, 2015. It has not gotten the love that I think it deserves, and I wish more people knew about it just so I could talk to more people about it. But it, it's really, really, really good. Um, and again, the, 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 the title story, the, the, sometimes it, that's a rule I'm willing to bend. Like, Ken lose the paper menagerie, rejiggering the thingamajig. It's not a hard and fast rule. I just wish um, publishers would be a little bit more creative or allow for more creativity when it came to book titles. But of course, if the main story included has such a fun title like rejiggering the thingamajig or has won an award like ken lose the paper menagerie did i mean i think that story had like a triple crown win of hugos and nebulas and something else a world fantasy award or something like that uh no wonder you want to name the book after it uh if people have read it it's fantastic anyway uh in this collection eric has a story called accounting for dragons and it reads very much like an instructional instruction manual. You know those um, those old big yellow and black books. You know something for dummies. It's written like that at first, and it's basically a guide, a step-by-step guide for a dragon 
to potentially file taxes because, of course, the the one of the great secrets of short fiction is that you use shortcuts. You use shortcuts, so the implication you imply certain things. So,、uh, because one of the one of the rules, as Kurt Vonnegut said, of writing a good short story is you have to start as close to the end as possible. So, in a short story, you never if there's a short story and a genie in it, you never start the story with the first wish. If you want it to be a short story, you start it with the third wish. And you can mention in passing what the first two wishes were, but then you've got the third wish, and that's you know the big grand climax. That's what the whole story is going to be about. What the third wish is about. Eric knows this.、Um, he's very good at it.、Um, so in 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 the case of this story, it, again it reads you know because dragons have hordes. The giant golden horde. I mean, if you've ever read The Hobbit, for instance, everybody knows that dragons have giant hordes that they sleep atop of, that they guard like you know really greedily.、Um, and so, obviously, if they existed in the real world and they had this, and they were sentient creatures like Smaug,、uh, and they were semi-civilized,、uh, they would have to pay taxes. <laughs> But the question is, how do you get a dragon to pay taxes, and how can you explain it to them? And that's what this story is about. And it's a fun little funny story in that way.、Um, Eric apparently, in one of the lectures he gave at BYU,、um, during one of Brandon Sanderson's guest spots, he he apparently talked about how、uh, he wrote that story. No, he it's in the afterword to the story. Because each story, by the way, in this collection. Um, has a little afterward that talks about how he wrote each story and how each story came about. And in the case of this one, he wrote it using voice-to-text software or speech-to-text software.、Uh, wrote the vast majority of it that way. And then he realized towards the end that there was a character reading this stuff, this instruction manual, to a dragon, probably in a desperate attempt for the dragon not to eat him. <laughs> Which made it all the more funny, in my opinion. So I thought, a, a, writing a story that reads a bit like an instruction manual, and writing it using a narrator that starts kind of in the second person, and but is actually a first-person narrator, so it's addressing the reader directly, but is actually there's a character there who's doing all the talking. I thought that was a, a fascinating combination, and I wanted to see if I could do it for something of mine. And I can remember sitting in my day job with、uh, with my little pocket notebook. I had a little brown covered、um, brown a Manila Manila outside pocket moleskin notebook. I always carry one of those on me. I always carry a pocket sized notebook on me as well as a pen. And I can remember taking out the notebook and writing the title "How to Make a Magic Mirror." That's where it began. And then I began to sort of outline the story, what eventually became the chunk of the story. And there had been, but that was where Oscar Ambrose began, just written written by hand in a little Manila notebook. And at first, I thought, "There's no way that this could stand on its own. It's just, it's not hefty enough. It's too light. There's something, there's something missing from it." So, in a couple of iterations of the story, I tried. Buttressing it with a frame narrative. So in the first version, I think I used、um, 
uh, a wizard school scenario where there's this character who's going to read all this stuff and he's trying to learn how to make a magic mirror and he's reading this and ends up doing exactly what happens at the end of the story uh, or at the end of the uh, at the end of the instruction you know um, the last part of it happens to him which I find hilarious uh, and that didn't sell anywhere and then I rewrote it and used a different framing device where uh, I think it was like the contents of a children's book or something like that um, and that didn't go anywhere I don't even think I finished that one or sent it out anywhere and then I remember a couple years after trying to get this this piece out there and thinking, well, maybe it's dead in the water. Um, just going back and rewriting it by hand in another notebook, another Manila notebook, all the way through with the, the little rhymes and everything, because it's got a couple of little rhymes in it. You'll hear that shortly. Um, and just thinking, well, maybe if I let it stand on its own, it'll be good enough. But then, of course, I had to start thinking, well, you know, going back to the main influences of how the story came to be, uh, I had to I had to think about what I was going to do. Uh, so, it was, like, how, how was I going to get this narrator who's really there and who's the, the purported author of this piece, how am I going to let him come through and be an actual presence? And I thought, I can do that with the title. So instead of calling it How to Make a Magic Mirror, I changed the title to Oscar Ambrose's Magicpedia Guide to Modern Mirror Making, which sounds even more absurd. <laughs> and how I came up with that title. Okay, so, well, the modern, you know, Guide to Modern Mirror Making, that's, that's obvious. I mean, it sounds more antiseptic than How to Make a Magic Mirror, but Oscar Ambrose, that name, first part, I love the name Oscar. It's, a, it's, it's got a very Spanish feel to it, in my opinion. And uh, this was, I wrote this piece just as I was beginning to try and put more and more of my ethnicness, whatever you want to call that, inject that into more of my work. And I thought if I put the name Oscar into it, it would work. Also, and I don't mean to sound arrogant in saying this, the narrative is quite witty. And I thought, well, Oscar, Oscar Wilde, nice little thing. And he's also a bit cantankerous, Oscar the Grouch. There you go. There's certain connotations that that name brings with it. And then Ambrose, considering that this is a, a guide for magicians, purportedly, um, Ambrose is apparently the modern-day equivalent of one of the names that was apparently Merlin from the Arthurian legend's uh, actual last name in certain translations of the of the original Welsh text, his last name, if translated into English, was Ambrosius, and thus the name Ambrose, you know, that's one of the, um, that, that's a modern iteration of that name, so I thought, Oscar Ambrose, that has a nice ring to it, that'll be the name of my narrator, that'll be the name of the true author of this piece, and then Magicpedia, well, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever surfed the internet randomly looking for very specialized information, but you, trust me, if you look long enough, you will find it. And there are numerous wikis all over the internet that cover one subject in enormous amounts of detail. Just for example, there's Wikipedia. This is an actual website. You can go look it up. Wikipedia, and it's all, it's an entire wiki devoted to Star Wars. Another example, there's a thing called Bulbapedia, and Bulbapedia is an entire wiki devoted to Pokemon. 
I kid you not, it really exists. How do I know? I've been to this website. Uh, there's another one called um, Narutopedia, which is not nearly as creative a name, but it's all about the, non- the manga and anime Naruto. <laughs> I'm not kidding, these things are real. <laughs> and it's so great to know that there are nerds out there who care enough to put this together. So obviously, you know, going off names like that, and going off the fact that there are wikis out there that are devoted to one subject, obviously if you wanted to name a wiki that was devoted to nothing but how-to guides for magic, you would call it Magicpedia. Duh! So this is Oscar Ambrose's Magicpedia guide. This is his wiki, and this is a segment of it. <laughs> now, so so that's how the, the story, as most people, when I, when I finally got it done, I then attended the, um, the, the Lawrence, Can- the, the, the short fiction writing workshop at the James Gunn Center in, in Lawrence, Kansas in 2018. After I got finished there, I sent the early version of Oscar Ambrose to a few people who were there and just asked them for their, their two cents, whether or not they thought it was good. I had no clue how to write flash fiction at the time, and I was trying to learn, and I thought this might work as a flash fiction story. It could count as one. I've read stories, you know, and now after having read Motivation Story and after having had a subscription to Daily SF for a number of years at this point, flash fiction is so damn weird. I mean, it, it is... It can take on so many different forms, and I thought if this piece could work as one of those, then I'm happy. And the thing of it is, is that I got a very positive response from the people who saw this piece. The one bit of advice that I thought was really great was from my colleague Kathy Kitts. I have absolutely no problem talking about her. She's actually got a book out um, on... I've got a signed copy of it. Let me see real quick. Um, uh, where the hell is it? There it is. Getting What You Need by Kay Kitts. It's out there in the world. I've got a beautiful trade paperback edition of it that's signed. Um, Her piece of advice to me, because she was one of the people who read it, was to make it funnier. And so I thought, well, how can I make, how can I do that? And so I just injected a whole bunch of extra parenthetical notes, um, a whole bunch of jokes, because that's what they were. Just make it funnier. If that, you know, I can do that. That's the best note ever. Make it funnier. Like, awesome. So, that's what you're about to hear. And I'm finally glad that this piece is is published. It's on the Angry Noodle. I'll include a link to it in the uh, episode description notes. You can all go read it. Or you can all listen to just the version that's here. Um, it's the same thing. And I'm, just, I'm happy it's finally out there in the world. So here it is. Oscar Ambrose's Magicpedia Guide to Modern Mirror Making. Enjoy. Oscar Ambrose's Magicpedia Guide to Modern Mirror Making. By me, Ian Martinez Kassmeyer. Introduction. So how does one make a magic mirror in these contemporary times? It's understandable that you'd ask this question. You wouldn't be reading this if you weren't curious. 
Originally, magicians like you and me who made such charms created the whole thing by hand. Then, they'd enchant the reflection coating prior to the silvering process. That, of course, was back in the days of cottage industry and artisan craftsmanship, when consumers prized quality and care over quantity and efficiency. If you'd like a full history of the craft, click the enclosed link. However, with the advent of factory-made, mass-produced products, such practices have become obsolete. Even magicians must modernize. Thus, here I seek to teach you the modern method of mirror-making, the post-production form. Step 1. You must obtain the subject of your proposed enchantment, a mirror. Good quality mirrors, such as those framed in wood or metal, work best. Mirrors framed in fiberglass or plastic are more likely to break when enchanted due to the material's higher fragility. You may think built-in obsolescence for that. Step 2. Once you've acquired your mirror, you must select which enchantment you wish to cast. This, of course, will depend upon what sort of mirror you wish to create. Click the Spells link to go to our curated catalog of incantations. Three classic enchantments include 1. The Truth Charm. Loose the tongue devoid of ruth, hence only reveal the truth. Warning. Do not enchant mirrors you or your significant other will use regularly. If you or they ask it how you look, it will be honest. Trust me, it's unpleasant. 2. The Animation Charm. Object at rest without a voice, respawn now with words of your choice. Warning. Again, do not enchant mirrors you or your significant other will use regularly. If you say something to the mirror, it will respond as it pleases and may rip you a new one. Again, take my word for it. 3. The Clairvoyance Charm Aid me in my puzzling quest, show me where my targets rest. Warning. Do not enchant mirrors to which your significant other or other potentially dangerous people will have regular access. If you lie, they will use it to hunt you down and do you harm. Or so I've heard. Step 3. Enchant the mirror. Duh. To do this, simply aim your wand or other spellcasting apparatus at the epicenter of the mirror. Proceed then to speak your chosen charm's incantation, and fire away. You must be cautious, however. A mirror is capable of reflecting and redirecting any enchantment aimed at it if the spell strikes it at an imprecise angle. Thus, before you cast your charm, check that your mirror stands or hangs perpendicularly and at an exact 90 degree angle. The slightest tilt may result in ricochet. End note on spellcasting. As I stated previously, some mirrors are more liable to break during the enchantment process due to the poor quality of materials used to make them. Nevertheless, even well-made mirrors may break if an enchanter casts their spell with too much force, due possibly to exasperation or anger. Always make sure to cast your spells with a clear, calm mind or your mirror may fracture. I actually wrote this article after a truth charm rebounded and struck me in the chin. I couldn't chew well for a week. I wish you luck and good enchanting.
So let me quickly tell you a story about the first time I actually read this piece aloud. So the year after, um, the summer, the, the very next summer, the summer of 2019, before all the shit hit the fan with COVID and the pandemic and so forth, I went back to Lawrence, Kansas to attend the Repeat Offenders writing workshop at the Gun Center. Um, had a marvelous time. But the first week that we got back, Chris arranged uh, at the Lawrence Public Library as sort of this impromptu event. Uh, and I wrote about this on my blog. You can go read my account of it there. But uh, he arranged a, a, a public reading for all of us to go participate in. Because one of the things that uh, the, the instructors, Kidge and Chris, both tried to hammer home to us is that if we want to be professional writers, one of the things that's going to be expected of us is that we're supposed to do readings of our work. Um, I don't know how many of you have gone on YouTube and looked at um, different author events featuring, you know, name your favorite author, whether it's George Martin or whether it's Brandon Sanderson or V.E. Schwab or Pat Rothfuss or N.K. Jemison or, you know, Nettie Okafor, any of those people, uh, all of whom are great, by the way. But one of the things that frequently happens at these events is that they have, they read from their work. Now, you might not think that reading aloud is something that would cause people a lot of anxiety, but for people who want to be writers, most of us tend to be kind of introverted and you know not very good when it comes to being in public unless we have a lot of time to prepare so i was a little bit nervous about doing this but i decided that i was going to read oscar ambrose because i figured well it's short chris said that each of us was going to have five minutes to get up there introduce ourselves and read our piece uh so if you want to give them a whole reading experience, best to go short as opposed to reading an extract from something longer where they only get part of the experience. So go with something short. It's funny. It's amusing. So even better. Uh, and I decided I was going to do that. And so I spent the next couple of days between the workshops uh, and between socializing with everybody who was there just going over my piece. I read it off my Kindle. Um, I sent a copy of the, the manuscript through email to my Kindle so I could just go up there and read it from there so I wouldn't have to worry about turning pages or anything or any of that stuff. So I learned how to read it aloud, where the, where, where the punchlines were. Problem was is that I then, when I got up on stage, it wasn't really a stage, we were in a conference room that didn't actually have very good acoustics because I had to kind of lean very closely into the microphone like I'm doing right now at this moment and very nervous because I wanted everybody to hear me. <laughs> so I, I just kind of had to sit there and chew the microphone the entire time. It was really, really bad. I couldn't look up. I couldn't turn my head away because otherwise I wouldn't be in the mic. Not a very good mic, obviously. So, and But it worked to my advantage because I was so damn nervous anyway. Uh, so I stood there leaning on the podium and I just did in my most deadpan fashion just tried my best to let the jokes stand on their own without very much performance from me that's what I did and half the group who were in the audience who read that night were not close friends of mine they were not colleagues who knew me but they all came up to me afterwards and and said they really enjoyed the piece and that they really thought that this could be the beginning of kind of like a, a, a sequence, a series of stories. 
uh, about, you know, all being extracts from Oscar Ambrose's Magicpedia. And I've considered doing that. I've actually got like four or five different pieces on in, in my computer right now. They're in various stages of completion that I think would be just as funny and be just as good. Um, some of them might be a little bit longer than, than this one. This one clocks in at under 600 words. Um, f- you know, barely over four minutes to read, which made it perfect for that situation. Uh, so, Bree, if you're listening to this, <laughs> heads up. But the thing of it is, is that, you know, getting that good reception, I mean, getting the good reception from my workshop colleagues and getting the good reception from the people who were there, who listened to me read, it was, it was wonderful. Which is why it was also so disheartening that after that, for a good chunk of 2020, when I tried placing this story in several different venues, professional grade venues and they kept turning it down and i'm talking you know big venues i mean i like i I could name names but i'm not going to because uh, i respect the people who run these venues and i really enjoy them and i can see why they wouldn't accept it i mean for example there was one fantasy uh fantasy and you know fantasy and science fiction magazine that was out there that I sent this piece to and they rejected it and I realized looking at it that there's a very good reason why they probably did because they were looking for pieces they were they were one of those magazines that was really pushing for people of color and authors of color and diversity that it's part of their mission statement which is great but I also realized that this piece even though it's by a guy whose last name is Martinez uh, you know, and those of you who've seen pictures of me online, you know that I'm, I look ethnic, you know, <laughs> like maybe over this podcast, I might sound like the whitest dude in the world, but you see me in person and, you know, <laughs> you just wonder what country he's from. Uh, yeah, my father's got that same problem too. Anyway, um, but Oscar Ambrose doesn't really have any of that it doesn't really come off as a a piece that's been imbued very much with ethnicity of of anything really i mean aside from the name oscar but you know that could be an english name that could be a spanish name It, it doesn't have it doesn't reflect the fact that i am a person of color and identify as such um I even sent it, you know, to a couple of the noted podcast places and realized, like, oh, they can't put this up because it's four minutes of reading. They want something that will take them 20 to 30 minutes to read because, you know, so that's, you know, that's five times longer. So it's like, no wonder they turned it down. They may have liked it, but it was just too damn short. But of course, you don't know this when you get rejected from these venues or at least I didn't know it. You don't know these things. These are conclusions that I've come to in recent years, or in recent months, rather. Um, Because, you know, I I just think about it. But, you know, of course they didn't take it. It's like, duh. But you don't know this because they don't give you those personalized rejections. They give you form rejections for obvious reasons. They get inundated with so many uh, potential submissions that... If they spent all that time rejecting, they wouldn't be able to get through all their submissions if they gave you detail about it. So, you know, it is what it is. I'm just happy. And, and, and it's for that reason that I kind of understand why 
people end up going the indie route and just say screw the system screw the gatekeepers i'm gonna get my i'm gonna get my work out there and i'm gonna find my audience um because it is frustrating because i knew after the reaction that i got at the reading after i had done the revisions on it um i knew it was good i just couldn't find a place to put it I just couldn't find anybody who, who was willing to give me money for it until Bree. And I'm happy that Bree was, was the person who finally said, this is good, I'm going to put it on my website. It's perfect for the Angry Noodle, and now it's there, and now everybody can read it. I also love the fact that from now on, if I ever if I ever do publish a book, and I, I've decided, you know what, one of these days I'll just self-publish a book of short stories if I get enough of them published. Uh, just so that way I can I can have a, a book that I can point people to. It's like, see my work over there. If you like this book, if you like me, or if you want to check my stuff out, go go look at that. Because um, it's a good thing to have. The, the piece of advice, another piece of advice that Kathy gave me, actually. Um, but I can see why people would, would want to circumvent that, because it's frustrating. When you know something is good, and nobody's willing to pay you for it no one's willing to give it a platform it is annoying as hell i mean it is it's just it it can be infuriating but i'm so happy that in future i will have to write a sentence at the beginning of (laughs) of my book like a version of oscar ambrose's magicpedia guide to modern mirror making appeared on the angry noodle and that will be my favorite sentence until the end of time at this point because it's so ridiculous and fun. Uh, just like the story, which I'm happy is finally out there in the world, and I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, funny people. Thanks for spending some time with me here on Four Cents a Podcast. Until next we meet, stay safe, stay healthy, and bear in mind the words of the great poet Langston Hughes, Folks, birthing is hard, and dying is mean, so get yourself a little lovin' in between. I'll see you next time.